0: What we're going to do now is weird. You probably haven't done this the rest of the week. I'm going to sit in rows pointed at someone who's going to speak to you from a book that the newest part is about 2000 years old. That's weird. Now, young folks, especially, it's particularly weird for you. You guys are raised in a culture where your attention span is being intentionally whittled down to just mere seconds at a time, and yet we're going to ask you to to sit and listen to this weird guy speak from a weird book that's 2,000 years old, and he's probably going to do it for a long time. But let me encourage you, young people and old people, what we are about to do is not just an exercise in learning interesting things. This is an exercise in spiritual battle. Our enemy is alive and well, and he wants you to be ignorant of the things of God, the will of God, the ways of God. One of the primary ways that he has designed for us to combat that ignorance is through the preaching and teaching of his written word. So as I... Preach this morning from Genesis forty-eight. As you listen, and as you try to pay attention, and as you try to figure out what does this do in my life, you are actually waging a battle, a spiritual battle against the one who would destroy you, the one who would lull you to sleep, the one who would help you just think about other things instead of the Word of God. So I encourage you: set this side of time in your mind. Set this side in your mind aside, uh, as a special time dedicated to hearing what God has to say through his perfect word. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for gathering this group together this morning, and I thank you especially for the the young folks who are here with their parents and grandparents. Uh, Lord, I know people are traveling, they're doing Memorial Day stuff, but I want to pray specifically for these people who are here right now, Lord, that you would help them to hear from Genesis 48, the, the good news that you have for us this morning. And it's an unexpected good news, but it is, it is good. So Lord, help us to understand what you have written for us. Help us to know how to apply it to our lives, and help us to know how to walk in obedience with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Our family got to go on uh, vacation for almost two weeks. We got back a couple days ago and we got to visit some beautiful places, got to have some fun together. I just want to share a few things with you. Let's go to the first picture here. When we were in uh, Red River Gorge area of Kentucky, we stayed at a house that had like 250 acres or so. And we just went exploring. We walked down to the creek and uh, walked up the creek and found this little side creek with this hidden It's like up on top of this ledge that we had to scale up and and get to and find this, this hidden waterfall. is a special prize. The, uh, there's no name for it. It's just just hidden in the hills of Kentucky. We loved finding it. And we also went to uh, this next one. This is uh, Copperas Falls. It was really uh, misty when we were there, but just giant rock overhang, beautiful falls. Um, we, we got done with that hike, and we were all like just sweaty and like, man, what is so, we got in the car, turned it on and the temperature in the van said it was only 59 degrees. (laughs) What is wrong with us? How could we be so sweaty after that hike? But it was a, it was a beautiful time. We went to Brakes Interstate Park, which is the next slide. This is on the border between Kentucky and Virginia. And uh, when you, when you travel, if you travel to beautiful outside places, I encourage you to do a couple things read those, those helpful little plaques that try to tell you how this was formed, and then reread it or evaluate it through the lens of Genesis. Right, so this particular park is this canyon that cuts through Pine Mountain. Pine Mountain's more than a, 100 miles long. It's just this long, like a snake mountain. And uh, the story is that somehow... Millions of years ago, a little creek started winding its way somehow up the mountain and down the other side and cutting its way through, making a canyon right here at Breaks Interstate Park. Now, water doesn't work that way, right? And water always flows in the, the path of least resistance downhill. So you've got this hundred plus mile long mountain, and then within just like four miles, the end of the mountain you've got this canyon that cuts through it. Well, why wouldn't the water just go around the end of it? So when you see beautiful things that God has made and our worldly explanations for how they come about, think about Genesis, think about the Word of God, think about how God made everything in a short amount of time and that large timescales don't make sense and that often we try to come up with reasons for how this came about that don't line up with reality as revealed in the Word of God. But still, a beautiful place to be. And then uh, the next slide here, we went, uh, this is farther down, this is about 20 miles down, same mountain, up on Pine Mountain. So look out, observation point up there. It was a beautiful night up there. We had a great time. Sometimes some of us were not so thrilled about being with some of us. Because when you put family together for 12 days, it's what you get sometimes. Because family is hard. Today, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture, forty-eight, chapter 48 of Genesis, where we see a difficulty, a tension, a hardness in the family, and it's going to be a little bit surprising. If you've got a Bible with you, I pray, I'd ask you to open it up to Genesis 48. It's on page 41 if you're looking in a, a pew Bible. And here's, here's where we've been so far. We've been looking at the story of Jacob, who's later named Israel, the Father of the nation of Israel and his sons he 's got a bunch of sons through a bunch of wives he 's got his favorite son Joseph, who at age seventeen, is uh, sold into slavery in Egypt by his brothers. Jacob thinks that joseph 's dead for years and years and years. He hears nothing of him, but God raises Joseph up to the point of second in command, governor of Egypt, superpower of the world from slave. To superpower. And he uses Joseph to save the lives of millions of people. He gives Joseph uh, knowledge of the future so that Joseph can save up extra grain during seven years of plenty so he can distribute it during seven years of famine. During those seven years of famine, the brothers of Joseph come to Egypt because they're starving, their wives are starving, their kids are starving. They buy grain from Joseph, not knowing it's Joseph. And through a series of events, Joseph provides generously for his family, then makes sure that his youngest brother, Benjamin, comes to visit, and finally brings the whole family, Jacob, all of the, the kids, the grandkids, all, he brings everybody to Egypt, saving their lives. Jacob, at that point, thinks he is done with life. He's been alive for 130 years. He, th- he thinks he is done, but God has different plans for him, and he lives another 17 years. Now, this is a little beautiful poetic thing. Jacob loves those first 17 years with his favorite son, Joseph, and then Joseph is taken from him. And then the end of his life, unexpectedly, he gets another 17 years with his beloved son, Joseph. Well, we pick up today at the end of that 17 years. Jacob is at the end of his life, and he knows it. And he wants to bestow special blessings on his family. He's eventually, when we look at the next chapter, going to get to all of the sons, but today he's going to focus on two grandsons, the sons of Joseph. So chapter 48 in Genesis, we read this. After Joseph... After this, Joseph was told, behold, your father is ill. Some of you have gotten that call. Your mother, your father, your grandparent, they are ill, they are on their deathbed. So he took with him two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, and it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel, we're going to switch back and forth between the two names throughout this whole chapter, Jacob is Israel, Israel summoned his strength and sat up. In bed. So can you picture the scene? 147 year old Jacob, this man who has accomplished a lot in his life. Um, he, he has traveled to Haran a thousand miles. He has started a family, built a family, gotten rich as a hard working. Uh, shepherd, he has run for his life. He has traveled a thousand miles back. He's physically wrestled with God, or at least an angel representing God. We saw that in a crazy story earlier in Genesis. He has conquered and claimed a land. He has fought wars. Um, he survived the death of his wife. He, he thought he survived the death of his son. He has been through all of these things as an old man. He's traveled hundreds of miles to Egypt. He's done all these things, and now at the end of his life, this is the last physical thing he accomplishes. It takes all of his strength to sit up in bed. The man who has traveled thousands of miles, accomplished much, started a nation, all he can do now is summon all of his strength to sit up in bed. If we live long enough, that's where all of us will end up. For Jacob... He is doing this. He's, he's groaning, he's grunting, his bones are creaking, he's sitting up in bed, so that the last thing he does is be a blessing to his family. Now, I think that's beautiful. Especially for us Christians, we do not fear death, and so we can pour ourselves out in love and in grace and in service and in blessing, even right up to the very last moment, because we do not fear death. It is but a transitional moment into death the perfect life to come. And for Jacob, he's going to use every last moment, every last ounce of strength in order to bless his family. Here's what the old man says. Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you and I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. So he doesn't start with blessing, he starts with a reminder to Joseph of the promise to the family. This is significant. Jacob has been a scoundrel for much of his life trickster, dishonest. He, he's got a shadowy past. But as an old man, Jacob is now walking closely with God. He's in step with God. And as he starts this last little speech, like the last will and testament, the last words that he wants to communicate to his family, he starts with reminding them of the promises of God. These are the words that God spoke. This is the promise that we as a family cling to. May that be true of us too. Jacob knows that the most important thing about his life is that God has been faithful to him. I want you guys to hear that. Jacob knows that the most important thing about his life, the first thing he's going to say, the lead off to his final speech, is that God has been faithful to him. It's not about Jacob. It's not what Jacob has accomplished. It's what God has done for him. Verse 5. Still speaking to Joseph. Now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt, this was before the rest of the family came and joined him, before I came to you in Egypt, they are mine. He just claims them. They're mine now. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. So Reuben and Simeon were the number one and number two sons, first and second born. Ephraim and Manasseh now are being forcefully adopted by Jacob in his last few moments, saying they are now mine. I am counting them as number one and number two instead of Reuben and Simeon. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. I'm not interested in them. You get to keep them, right? But I want these two boys they shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. So he's saying, I'm taking my grandkids, these two grandsons, and I'm raising them up to the level of children when it comes to inheritance. Now, this is weird for Joseph, right? Because the whole life of these boys, Joseph has been dad. Joseph has been in charge. Joseph has been the authority in the family. And then granddad comes along and pulls this little stunt where he says, now your sons are actually your peers as far as the greater family is concerned. That would be a little disruptive. How how do they interact with each other? Now, the good news is Jacob only has a few minutes or hours left. And so this whole adopting them as sons thing, it, it doesn't have a, uh, a long-lasting practical play out for the family. They get to kind of go back to how they've operated. But But the promises that God gives here through Jacob will become history. Verse 7, as for me, when I came from Padam, that's the area of Haran where he was, to Marsaro, Rachel, that is his favorite wife, died in the land of Canaan on the way when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. So he's, he's remembering that. And honestly, it seems a little weird that this is stuck in the middle of the narrative. First, you might think, well, maybe Jacob's just, his mind's getting a little scattered. He is very old. He is on the brink of death. Maybe his things aren't tracking real well. But we can see in the next few statements that even though this old man is tired and frail and can barely sit up in bed, he does still have his wits about him. He goes on, verse 8, when Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Not because he doesn't know who they are, but because, as we'll see later, he can't see. Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them, and he embraced them. Kids, young people in the room, maybe you have lost a grandparent or another relative that you love. Maybe you got to spend some time with that person before they left. If so, you know the sadness that these boys, who are grown men, are feeling at this moment. They're going to lose grandpa soon, and grandpa wants to spend a last few moments with them. This is a beautiful but sad moment. 11. Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. He thought he was dead. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. Removed them from whose knees? From Jacob's knees. So, 147 years old, can barely sit up in bed, blind, and yet he's got these two fully grown young adult sons sitting on his knees for this this blessing. This is a weird picture, isn't it? And yet there's a beautiful Family love going on here. Now the official blessing. Verse 13. Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. So, this is not a mistake. Jacob is not confused here. He's doing this on purpose, and there have been some clues leading up to this. So far in the story, this chapter, each time that Jacob has talked about the sons, he's put the name of Ephraim before the name of Manasseh, even though Manasseh is the firstborn. Jacob is doing something here that we will see fits into a larger pattern throughout Scripture. He's taking Manasseh, who's the firstborn, and instead of blessing him with the firstborn blessing, he is demoting him to secondborn and promoting the secondborn Ephraim to firstborn. This is something that we see throughout Genesis and throughout the Bible, but very very prominently in Genesis. Think about you got Cain and Abel, right? Abel is the secondborn, and yet he is the one that's preferred by God, and his offering is, is accepted by God, where Cain's offering is rejected. You get to the flood in the family of Noah, and you have Shem, secondborn, who is the one that the promise goes through? We get the word Semites from Shem. He is the, the line, but he's the second born. Abraham is at least the third born in his family, and yet he's the one chosen by God. Of his sons, Isaac, the second born, is the preferred, not Ishmael. Isaac is Jacob, gets blessed over Esau, even though Jacob was the second born. Later on, David, who is way down the line, is the one chosen as king. He's the runt of the litter, but God chooses him. This happens throughout Scripture. And here in this moment, Jacob is cooperating with this strange, mysterious, but master plan of God, and he crosses his hands in order to bestow the blessing. He blessed Joseph and said, The God God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys and in them let my name be carried on. The name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac and, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Now I want you to see a few things in here. First, Jacob is specific about who God is. He doesn't just say, God, whoever he is. He's not polytheistic. I'm going to pray to a bunch of gods. He's speaking about one particular God, and he's not not delusionally thinking that somehow all religions are the same and everybody points to a higher reality that we just can't understand, and we all have different facets of it, and he's not buying any of that. He says, the God of my fathers, Abraham, Isaac, My God, the one who has talked to me, the one I am wrestled with, the one true God, the creator of the universe, the one who picked me, he's the one who's brought me through all of this stuff. Young folks, especially those who are school age and higher, you live in a world that is increasingly denying the one true God. You will have to deal with things as you grow older, that your parents and your grandparents did not have to deal with to such a degree. Last week, I read the results of an interesting study. This is called the American Worldview Inventory. It's done every year by Arizona Christian University. They interview thousands of people asking them questions. Here's some of the results. 43% of the millennial generation don't know, don't care, or don't believe that God exists. That's just a quote of how they phrased the question. 43% of the millennial generation don't know, don't care, or don't believe that God exists. Never in the history of the United States has that been true of a generation. In fact, I would say not in the history really of Western civilization, at least since the Christianization of Europe, has there been a generation in the West that this would be true of. It also says 16% of that millennial generation believe that when they die, they will go to heaven only because they have repented of their sin and entrusted Christ alone for salvation. That's the gospel of Jesus. You you get accepted by God, forgiven, you get to be welcomed into the kingdom of God only by turning from your sin and placing all your trust in Christ alone for salvation. Of that millennial generation, 16% said yes. That's what I believe. It's actually probably less than that. 31% of the millennial generation believe that God is the all-knowing, all-powerful, just creator of the universe. So less than a third of that young adult generation believe in the all-knowing, all-powerful creator God as described for us in the Bible. Interestingly, a higher percentage, 35%, believe in horoscopes and consult them for guidance in decisions in life. Older folks, the younger people in this church, the ones who are camping with their families right now, they are living in a different world than you grew up in. Are you praying for them? Are you engaging them in friendship? Are you helping coach them through these younger years where you wouldn't even recognize the things that they're coming against? Young people, will you live your life in friendship with the one true God, even if the rest of your generation rejects him. Second thing I wanted you to see in this blessing here is that Jacob refers to God as his shepherd. We've seen in previous chapters how the Egyptians rejected the family of Jacob partly because they are Shepherds. Shepherds, we're told, were an abomination to the Egyptians. And yet Jacob here, in his last words, refers to his God as a shepherd. As madness to the Egyptians, it's madness to our world. But those of us who are Christians, we know that the one true God of the universe, that all-powerful, all-knowing, creator, just judge of the universe is a shepherd. And he loves and he cares for his sheep, his people. And so 2,000 years later, Jesus, God in the flesh, would say this in John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. This is madness to an unbelieving world that, first of all, for the Egyptians, they would look like, if your God is a shepherd, you have a loser God. Right, But the world looks at us as if, if your God is a poor blue-collar worker in Palestine who was killed on a Roman cross, you have a loser God. And yet we know that our God died, gave up his life for us as a good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. As beautiful as Jacob's blessing of the boy's is there is this big problem. He's crossed his hands. He's blessed the older below the younger, right? He's put Ephraim first. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. It ticked him off. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. Now, just reading this, we don't know if there's anger in his voice. We don't know if there's exasperation, like, man, dad is just not with it today. i got to help him out. But do you see the the irony here? Jacob, who deceived his nearly blind father into blessing him instead of older brother Esau, is now intentionally blessing younger brother Esau ephraim over manasseh and joseph is trying to correct him it all comes weaving back together in the story how will dad respond is there tension here will he rebuke him will he will yell at joseph what's going on but his father refused and said i know my son i know He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. And that is a a common blessing that has endured for 4,000 years in the Jewish community. May God make you like, and then second-born Ephraim first then Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Jacob is doing this on purpose. The surprising twist here is that Joseph, who has been the hero through the last 12 chapters, now seems to be getting it wrong. He's gotten it right so many times. He seems to be getting it wrong because notice the tone in which Jacob pronounces this blessing. He's not saying, I hope this is true for these boys. I wish this would happen. He is speaking with authority. Jacob is functioning here as a prophet, and what he said will come true. And so this is the word of God being authoritatively delivered to the nation of Israel through the figurehead Israel himself himself. Describing not what he hopes will happen, but what will happen. And Joseph, the hero of 12 chapters, fights against it. Jacob has to correct him. But he does it gently. He does it graciously. The fighter, the scrappy young Jacob, has been rounded off. Sanded smooth in his old age. In the New Testament book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, writing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, looks back on all these giants of the faith, and in verse 20 and 21, he gives us a clue into what's happening here. He he first mentions the previous generation, the blessing of Isaac to Jacob and Esau. He says, By faith, Isaac invoked future blessing on Jacob and Esau. Then he goes on to this, And by faith, that is, working in cahoots with God, Trusting God, by faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. So the writer of Hebrews tells us that when Jacob is pronouncing this blessing, he's doing it in faith, and he's doing it as an act of worship. This is not just last moments with grandpa. This is God shaping the nation of Israel, determining and giving a clue beforehand about the reality that is to come. Ephraim will be greater than Manasseh, he says. Jacob speaks with authority. Now, as in most, well, at least many of the cases of Bible prophecy, uh, the plain reading of it doesn't necessarily help us figure out how it works out. Because if we look at at history here, we'd say that it seems to be, I'm sorry, I forgot to read the last few verses. here. Let me read this for you. This will make more sense. Verse 21. Then Israel said to Joseph, behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites, with my sword and with my bow. Now, why is that mountain slope important? Why does Jacob have to stick it in here? I don't know. But notice right before that, he says, God will be with you and he will bring you out of Egypt back to the promised land. Now, it doesn't work out the way that we would expect because Joseph, as we'll see in the last two chapters of Genesis, Joseph dies in Egypt. He does not leave Egypt to go back to the promised land alive. But because of the promise given here by Jacob, the nation of Israel clings to that promise, keeps the bones of Joseph, which is a little weird, for 400 years, and then when God leads them out of the Exodus after that 400 years in Egypt, they take the bones of Joseph with him, take him all the way to the promised land in order to bury him in the family tomb there in order to fulfill that prophecy. So how does this fit with us today? As I was trying to wrestle this passage to the ground this week, it occurred to me that perhaps the most helpful thing for us today is to see how this passage sheds light on the sometimes infrequent, sometimes persistent tension that can arise in families when the things of God are at stake perhaps you have found yourself in a position. Parents, grandparents, young kids, maybe you have, maybe you will soon. You found yourself in a position where uh, God has revealed His will. like In Scripture, it's clear. This is what God wants, right? And yet you have a family member or a whole family or a bunch of friends or whatever who are trying to push you in a different direction. They don't want you to be going in the direction of the revealed Word of God, they want you to go in another direction. And so you have a choice to make. It's as though we have a triangle. You, God, family, maybe friends. And there's going to be a divide. And you've got to decide where that divide is. Will you draw the line, as our next slide shows here, so that you are lined up with family and rejecting what God has given you in your Word? His word? Will you make that divide there so that you are allied with family and not with God? Or will you draw the line, as hard as it would be, to ally yourself with God, making a divide between you and family or friends or whoever the group is? That's what was taking place in this particular chapter because Jacob is speaking the authoritative words of God, saying, This is the plan for the nation of Israel, and Joseph. Whom we should trust, right? Inserts himself and says, You got it wrong, Pops. Here, let me flip your hands for you. And Jacob has to choose. What's he gonna do there? Is he gonna is he gonna ally himself with God? Or is he gonna go with Joseph, who has proved himself to be trustworthy and godly and has saved your life, right? It's a tough situation. And for Jacob. And he's finally got it, right? He says, no, i got to draw the line somewhere. You want me to go this way, God wants me to go this way, and I have to go with God. Have you felt that tension in your family? Some of you hate this, I know. And some of you make you angry. like is God's idea anyway. And family are the closest relationships we have. And how could God possibly set up or even allow a situation where we would have to say, I've got to draw the line somewhere, and I'm going to place myself on the side of God instead of the side of my beloved, maybe even godly, honorable, trustworthy family. How could God do that? That doesn't sound like God that I want to follow, right? Doesn't he want... Our families to all, well, yes, he wants our families to get along. He wants all our families to walk in the will of God. But sometimes the will of God and the will of family, in this case, Joseph, are different. You're forced to draw a line. So Jacob chose to go with God. Maybe if you've got the best family in the world, this is especially hard to swallow. If you've got a, a terrible family that hates God and they're always trying to pull you away from God, this is easy. It's like, this is giving you permission to draw the line, right? But if you've got godly parents and grandparents and brothers and sisters and all this, this is hard. And this doesn't sit well with this. And yet look at these words from Matthew 10. Jesus himself, he says this. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. That is, I've come to divide. I've come to draw a line. For I have come to set a man against his father, daughter against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Probably one of the easiest tasks Jesus ever had, right? And person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And we say, wow, what... I thought Jesus was like Mr. Rogers, always kind, always gentle. But these are hard words. He's saying the reality of this world is there are times when you're going to have to draw the line. You're going to have to decide, are you with God on this thing or are you with family? Are you with friends? Are you with your boss? Are you with whatever? You have to draw those lines. What does he say next? Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it and ever loses his life for my sake will find us. Jesus here is calling his disciples. He's like speaking directly to them and then by extension to us. He's saying, my calling for you is one of living sacrifice. He says, unless you take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy to be my disciple. Now, many of the people he was talking to at that moment would physically give up their lives for him within the next few decades. Probably none of us in this room will have to die in order to be faithful to Christ. But thousands of Christians every year around the world do die because of their faith in Christ. But we are called to be living sacrifices, according to Romans 12. We are called to be living sacrifices, even if we don't give up our lives. We are giving up our lives for the sake of Christ, to be his disciple, to be his follower. Jesus is not doing a bait and switch here. He's not saying, come to me, give forgiveness, get eternal life, and then once you're in the club, say, okay, here's the real cost. He's laying it out up front. He's saying, look, if you want to be my follower, if you want to be my disciple, it's going to cost you your life. He's being honest with us. At the end there, he makes this, this statement. He says, you can have it this way, or you can have it this way. Whoever finds his life, meaning in this world, will lose it, meaning eternal life. And whoever loses his life, for my sake, will find it. He's saying, this is your choice. This is the deal. And I want to be up front with you. Right? So, as, as I try to convince you of this, I'm not trying to uh, like sell Jesus as an, as an accessory for your life. I'm not trying to get you to upgrade the trim package on the vehicle that you're buying. I'm trying to convince you to abandon your life for the one who gave up his life to save your life. Jesus says, You can cling to your life here and not have eternal life. You can give up your life here, and you can have eternal life. It draws that division, that dividing line. Just like we saw in the Jacob blessing the boys story, there's a dividing line. And and God's going in one direction, and Joseph wants to go in another direction, and Jacob's got to choose The good news is, not only is Jesus honest with us, but the deal is a good deal. You can have the next 50 years, 70 years, two minutes, whatever you have left on this earth with you as the king and the Lord and the ruler of your own life. You can do whatever you want, live for your own self-centered purposes and pleasure and fulfillment. You can have all that stuff. And have no eternal life. Or you can surrender your life here to Jesus. And you can have eternal life. Eternally. Alive. With Christ. That is a good deal. Yes, there's a dividing line. Yes, you're forced to choose. But the offer is gold. It costs Jesus, everything. And now he calls us to give up our everything in order to follow him. Even if it means having to push back against family. Even if it means having to push back against friends. Walking away from family. Walking away from friends in order to walk with Jesus. Man, Some of you, you've had to do that. You know the pain of that. Like God says this, My beloved family says this, and i got to go. But you know the pain from that. Others of you, you are running full speed away from that pain, and yet God keeps giving you that choice. Let me encourage you. Give up your life here. Follow him with everything, even in that hard situation. Make Jesus first. Trust him with everything. And know that you have eternal life in heaven. So, and if your family kicks you out, it doesn't matter that much anyway. You got a bigger family for the rest of eternity. Let's pray, Father. Thank you for these uh, these words from Genesis forty eight and from John and from Hebrews and how they come together in order to encourage us in this special way. Lord, I want to pray specifically for those in this room who, uh, they're really doing pretty well with family. Maybe they're a family that's just full of believers who are walking together and uh, walking in obedience to you, Lord. I pray that you would help them to be diligent, be on guard, to not be complacent, but to to be constantly uh, aware that you are calling them to higher things, to greater obedience, to closer walk with you. And, and Lord, let them not be complacent. Let them not fall asleep in their comfortable Christian family. Lord, for those who are Um, trying to take their faith in Christ seriously, to live as He is Lord of their life, and yet family is working against them, maybe mocking them, maybe uh, trying to short-circuit their growth. Lord, would you give them the strength and the grace to stand in you, stand with you, to surrender themselves to you? And Lord, for those who are trying to figure out, do they even want to be a part of this? Do they want to accept this deal that you are offering here, Lord, would you help them to see uh, just how great the reward is for giving up their life and surrendering completely to you in this life. In Jesus' name, amen.